like to memorize a scripture passage, uh, that would be it this morning. Revelation 5, 5, weep no more. Glorious indeed. <clears throat> Please turn uh, for our reading in the New Testament this morning to 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll be reading uh, verses 11 to 21. Uh, but before we go to the Lord <clears throat> and hear his word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his blessing upon that word. Join me in prayer if you would now. Our dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, praising you. We give you thanks for this, your word, that it is perfect, that it is powerful, that it is complete. You have revealed yourself to us, dear Lord, and you have shown us all that we need to know for life and godliness. And so we ask now, Lord, this morning that you would help us to believe this word, to base our life upon it. And Lord God, to find comfort as we hear it. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. Second Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him, who for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for the reading of God's word, may he indeed add his blessing upon it. Excuse me. Well, we have been discussing uh, matters relating to the state of man and the salvation worked by, by our sovereign God. I was reminded this week just how glorious and personally directed that salvation of God is. 
because of things going on in our lives and in our family, I was reminded how special and particular God's love is for his people. And that gets to the heart of what we've been discussing and what we're discussing indeed this morning again. And I'm talking about the committing to someone, setting your love upon someone whom you choose. All of us who are married know something of what I'm talking about, of course. We know what this means. When we decided to get married, we don't put an ad in the paper or online that says, I'm ready to love someone, just come on over. That's not what we do. Please come receive my love. That's not the way that we do it. We've talked about this in the past. Remember the appliances that I've mentioned. Um, I don't know if they do this anymore, but the appliances at the local bank, when you would open an account... You would get the toaster or whatever it may be, the coffee maker. It's not personal. It's not particular. It's not directed specifically at you. If you have a particularly good memory, you'll remember the time I confessed to all of you that when I was younger and I got a, a, a subscription to Sports Illustrated, I received a football phone. It was a phone in the shape of a football. And as a teenage kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But I knew as much as my young teenage self loved football and as cool as I thought that gaudy, ugly phone was, I knew it was nothing special for me. Everyone who subscribed got the same ugly phone that I did. Like everyone who opened an account at the local bank got the toaster. It was there for the taking. They were impersonal. They were inspecific. When it comes to God's love and his action in love to save and secure a people... It is as off-putting as a young man placing an ad in the paper saying, Here I am, ladies. My love's available for one of you. Come and take it. It's as off-putting as that and far more offensive to God to assert that that is how he loves his people. Here is my saving love. Come and take it if you want. And what's the problem with that? Right? We've seen week after week now. The problem is no one will come. No one wants that love. By nature, we are children of wrath. It's not only crass to assert this, it's impossible. Because no one who is dead in their sins will come and take it. No one will answer that ad. But while we were yet rebels, Scripture tells us, He died for us. He died for us. He made an atonement that fully and actually did something. Not an atonement that made something possible, or hypothetical, or potential, but he accomplished powerfully, perfectly, and personally our salvation. Last week we began to look at what atonement is, what that means. And at its most basic level, the word that we uh, derive this doctrine from uh, to start with is means to cover. Atonement means to cover. In the book of Hebrews, you'll recall last week we looked at Uh, teaches us that all the required animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, all the Levitical code, the Mosaic system that was set up, could in reality never provide the forgiveness and cleansing that man needed. Hebrews tells us that they symbolically looked forward to a far greater atonement, and that is the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And in reality, the word atonement, it only begins to scratch the surface of what Christ really accomplished on the cross. In the cross cross of Christ, we find a total and a complete resolution 
of the very wrath of God against sin. And in the cross of Christ, we also find the bright and shining declaration, the revelation of the wonder of His love for us sinners. Certainly, there's much more that we could talk about and look at endlessly in the complexities and the glories of all of this. But we must pick up where we left off in our discussion uh, from last week. We'll pick up this morning and we'll look at um, uh, a number of things. We'll look at what did, the, what did the cross accomplish, number one. For whom did Christ die, number two. And then thirdly, the doxological, so what, right? the conclusion of all of this, what this means. Right, so what did the cross accomplish? For whom did Christ die? And then so what? Conclusion of it all. Well, what did the cross accomplish? Our covenantal God in creating man, he created man in covenant with himself. And it is clear from all the components being present in God's dealing with Adam in those opening chapters of Genesis, the relationship between God and Adam was a covenantal relationship was a covenant of works. He gave Adam something to do. And this is confirmed, of course. Uh, we're, not, we're not limited to the Old Testament. We're not limited to the book of Genesis. But in the New Testament, especially we see this when we look at Romans 5, which compares the first Adam, proto-Adam, and the last Adam, eschatological Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Romans 5 makes this comparison. Right? Remember, we talked about the reality that heaven must be earned must be earned. And it was earned in Jesus Christ. Right? That covenant that Adam failed to keep, it was kept perfectly by Christ our Lord. Romans 5.19 says this. <clears throat> For as by, one, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, right? that is Adam, violating the covenant of works and incurring the cursed sanctions of of that covenant. Right? By the one man, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And that one man is Jesus Christ, the one who kept the covenant, who incurred the blessings of the covenant. And that for all his people who will identify themselves with him. Right? Heaven must be earned. And it was earned by Jesus Christ. And it is the gift and promise to all of those who find themselves by faith in Jesus, this gift, heaven itself. So first that we see that the cross of Jesus accomplished our salvation by what? By fully satisfying the demands of the covenant for his people. Satisfied the demands of the covenant. And remember also, Jesus took the curse sanctions for we who violated the covenant. This is how the Bible can speak of the glorious imputation or accounting that takes place. Right? You've all heard of this language, I'm sure, at one time or another. Christ's perfection and merited life. All the benefits of what Jesus has done, given to you who trust in Him by faith. And all of the punishment. And all of the curse of the covenant. All the sanctions of death due to me and my sin uh, as born and as earned throughout my life. All of that imputed and given over to Jesus. And he suffers the consequence of my failing to keep the covenant. Right? This is glorious. This is a complete admission, right? Mission accomplished. It is finished, Jesus cries out on the cross. And that's the first thing the, Christ, the cross of Christ accomplished. 
The second thing we began to look at last week, and we'll look at now, is that the cross of Christ actually and really redeemed a people. Not potentially, not hypothetically. It actually and truly, really did redeem a people. And we can see this in the history of the church. And if you study and read anything on the history of the church, we see these different errors cropping up, these different um, uh, hypotheses posited for for the people of God in regards to what Christ did. Right, we've been looking at some of this in this series. Challenges to what it is that we read in Scripture. <clears throat> we see those who have suggested erroneous and indeed greatly troublesome views on the atonement. Again, they say that uh, Christ made an atonement that was potential, that made saving people possible, that was set up a hypothetical structure that you could enter into on your own choosing. There's a governmental view of the atonement. And on and on, we could, we could catalog many of these uh, other views of the atonement. But the true teaching of the church, about which we should make no apologies, about which is clear and can be known and should be heralded from God's people, is that what we call a vicarious, substitutionary, voluntary atonement. That's what it was. At its root, substitutionary, right? Vicarious is just another synonym for that vicarious, in place of. In the atonement of Jesus Christ, it fully and truly actually redeemed a people. It accomplished what it set out to do. It's not a gift at the bank, there for the taking, for whoever comes by. That is not how it's set up, what we see in Scripture. It is a gift especially and personally for you, brothers and sisters, especially and personally for For you, it is custom made for the people of God, the people given to Jesus by the Father in love. Remember Ephesians 1 tells us, in love they were given to the Father, uh, to the Son. He says, for you, my dear children, come, receive, be loved, be saved, be mine. Live forever before me and with me. This gift is monographed. It is personalized. It has your name on it. It is yours specifically for you. It is personal. And the salvation that is planned and executed by our triune God is glorious. It is a glorious salvation. It is personal. It is perfect and it is powerful to save. And it does so fully and completely. It does so powerfully what it intends to do. And it does so personally. Listen again to Galatians 3, uh, verse 13. We began to look at this last week, Galatians 3.13, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us. Christ became a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Substitutionary in our place, on our behalf. Christ became once and for all time with those animals, those Old Testament animals, lambs and goats, anticipated but could never accomplish. And that is a full satisfaction for sin before God. Hear God's word again from 1 Peter 3, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I've heard this quoted on a commercial locally, 
um, some ministry uh, misquotes this verse and it says, he died for the righteous and the unrighteous. There is no righteous. We are not righteous. We are unrighteous. The verse says he died the righteous for, in the place of, who pair, the unrighteous. And then why? It goes on to say, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that most glorious text, speaking of this, uh, this exchange that is made, where it says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Again, why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Do you see this, what's going on here? The price of redemption was a price Christ paid on behalf of sinners. It was a substitute for his people. Christ paid what we owed. He was a curse for us, the just for the unjust, on our behalf. Christ redeemed us by paying the debt we owed to God and his law with the price of his own blood, satisfying that divine justice the wrath of God as a substitute in our behalf. And so the terms of God's covenant have been fully satisfied by Jesus in our place. Been satisfied by Christ in our place. Since Christ's substitutionary atonement was satisfactory, what's the therefore? Therefore God will never call his people to account for it. It has been paid. It has been paid fully. Christ paid it in our place for us on our behalf. Hallelujah. That's a glorious reality. And this brings us to the blessed truth of reconciliation. This is what the text that we read for our New Testament reading was all about. Reconciliation. The cross of Christ. Uh, In that cross, our position of children of wrath, enemies of wrath, is forever changed, right? We are now what? Children of his love, friends of God, children of the king. We've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. It is a glorious thing. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, starting at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. The glorious texts are so full and so rich, worthy of meditating all life long. The death of Jesus, Paul is saying here, reconciles us to God because that death of Jesus removes the wrath of God and so transforms our status from enemies to beloved friends to children of God. So what did the cross accomplish? It accomplished redemption by Christ's sacrifice. right? It accomplished propitiation by Christ as a substitute And reconciliation by that death of that self-same Jesus. The cross satisfied divine justice in our place by fulfilling the terms of the covenant. 
The cross paid the price of redemption and thereby actually and really redeemed us. Those whom, whom the Father plucked from the fire and gave to the Son, the Son actually and truly died for them and redeemed them. He bought them back. The cross reconciled us to God. And in the cross, Jesus Christ saved a people from their sins. In eternity past, God the Father chose to save a certain host of people, a certain company of people. And in history, in the cross of His Son, God absolutely did save those whom He chose. That should be a glorious, refreshing uh, sound to our ears, dear Christian. If this describes you, it is a glorious reality. What confidence comes from this? What encouragement? And this brings us to the next point. The next point, perhaps the most contested point, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? Well, we just discovered that the cross of Christ actually and truly, really accomplished what it set out to do. That is to redeem a people, to save a people. And this is the distinct point made by those holding to the biblical doctrine of limited atonement. Since the cross of Christ actually did redeem, it actually did satisfy the terms of the covenant, it actually did reconcile the people to himself, actually did render a substitutionary, substitutionary offering in the place of sinners, in your place, in my place, and it actually did save, the conclusion must be what? It must be drawn that either Christ saved all people, which Scripture denies, which we know is not true, or that Christ saved some people, a specific people, a particular people, which Scripture affirms. Remember Ephesians 1, those whom the Father preordained predestined before the foundation of the world, those it actually, truly, fully, powerfully, personally saves. An unlimited or universal atonement, which insists that Christ died for all men everywhere, must must by necessity limit or diminish the actual power and accomplishment of that atonement to a position of provision or possibility or potentiality. You see that? But this idea that Christ died to make salvation possible, this view falls very, very short, very far from the biblical data that we have been looking at in the past number of weeks. Because in both of these views, the atonement is limited. The question is, how is it limited? Is it limited in its extent because of its powerful and definitive accomplishment? Or is it limited in its power and accomplishment because of its universal scope? The reality is, brothers and sisters, that a universal atonement actually saves and redeems no one. It makes the cause of salvation to be the faith of the individual. It makes that to be the ground rather than Christ's work. We've just seen the atonement of Christ actually definitively and powerfully does redeem. It's a glorious thing. These aren't just technical theological words that rattle around in our heads. This is a glorious truth and reality. This is how you are saved. You belong to Jesus. It's because he accomplished salvation for you. And so, the atonement must be limited in its extent. 
It fully and powerfully and personally saves those to whom it was intended to save. That's why some people prefer the term particular redemption or definite atonement. Whatever phrase you use, this is the declaration of Scripture. This is what the data tells us. And it is glorious and it is wonderful. And it is reason for praise to the God to whom we belong. But what about the rest of Scripture? Does the rest of Scripture indicate that Christ died to redeem only a chosen few, only the elect? Is that what Scripture says? Notice the use of the words in these following passages, the words many, people, sheep, church. Notice these words regarding the design and extent of the atonement. You write these down, look at these later um, as you meditate the rest of this Lord's Day. Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. It says, My servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities, and he him, uh, yet he himself bore the sin of many. Right? Not all, but of many. He bore their iniquities. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for many. Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Indeed, Matthew opens in chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of the mother of Christ. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His people. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Not all people, a people for his own possession. Indeed, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11, 15, and 26 say this, I am the good shepherd. The the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See, there are two different peoples being described there. There are those who are his sheep and those who are not his sheep. Acts 20, verse 28. The admonition to the elders that the Apostle Paul gives. He says, shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Right? Shepherd the church, which he purchased with his own blood. And then listen to Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. This glorious picture of of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Comparing that, the analogy being a husband and a wife. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might, what, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. What a glorious promise that we have from the apostle here, from the Holy Spirit working through the apostle. And it is especially interesting to note that the point and the goal of the Father in Ephesians 1, right, just like Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 1, remember it says 
to present the elect as holy and blameless before him. Right, listen to Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Right, you see the, this, this bracketed. Ephesians is bracketed by this glorious declaration. And that should be glorious, good, refreshing news to all of us who sin and are befouled by our own sin. In the ongoing struggle that we have, the Lord Jesus will present us holy and blameless. That is glorious indeed. <clears throat> and this is exactly the same as Christ's intention as the loving husband who lays down his life for the church to make her holy and blameless. The Father and the Son, you see, dear Christian, are one. They're one in their respective redemptive activities. The eternal perfection of the elect. Right? The, uh, the Father decrees, the Son dies, the Holy Spirit applies. That's the triune working <clears throat> of our salvation. And as to be expected, the new covenant love of Christ <clears throat> to his bride is directed to her and her cleansing alone, not to any other group of people. It is special, it is definite, it is particular. Christ died and he cleanses, he washes with the word, his bride, not the rest of the world. Indeed, we see something that happens in the sacraments, in the supper, is that we're setting apart Christ's people from the rest of the world. They are holy unto him. It would be certainly inconsistent with the actions of Christ's marital love to be directed outside the boundaries of his bride. All these passages, again, they confirm that Christ's atonement was designed to redeem, to actually redeem, and it actually did redeem his elect, the many, the sheep, his people, the bride, his church. And so we see here the Bible teaching a limited atonement. It is definite. It is particular. It is glorious. Is it not? There are passages from the New Testament that people refer to who advocate the opposite of this. Those who advocate an unlimited atonement, they point to certain verses. We don't have time. <clears throat> it's not the setting of the place to unfold and unpack all of these. But what about, what about in general can we say about these passages? Those passages such as John 3.16 that refer to Christ, to God loving the world. He so loved the world. right? Or in 1 Timothy 2.6 it says he gave himself as a ransom for all. We say, oh, what happened? That doesn't sound limited at all. That sounds to be contrary, contradictory to what we just looked at. But quite simply, this is an, ex, uh, an expression of the glory of God's design all along. These universal sounding texts can be understood as emphasizing God's worldwide redemptive goal to gather together his international elect. From where? From all groups of people through the globe and throughout history. Indeed, this is exactly what he does. It's what he promised Abraham all the way in Genesis. Remember? All the nations of the world will be blessed in you. This is indeed what happens, right? It's not merely the Israelites, but people from the whole world, all kinds of people, even the Gentiles. This is the glory of the gospel. This is a key to what we see in the, in, in the book of Acts as the church grows and as the spirit uh, is poured out on the people. 
It's not just to the Israelites, not just to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see this, of course, expressed in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. It clarifies this for us when it says this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Right? A people, not just from one geographic location, physically on the earth, but from every tribe and language and people and nation. And these international elect men, these internationally elect people whom Christ purchased out from the various people groups will reign on the earth, the book of Revelation says. And so in Christ's redemption, the world is saved and the new humanity in Christ will reign upon the new earth. But the rest of the reprobate is cut off. There's a distinction, a very clear distinction in scripture. There are those who are God's people And there's everyone else. That should not be a case grounding a standard for pride in ourselves, but in the mercy of God. It should humble us. And in this sense, Christ is a ransom for all sorts of elect men. And the world he loves is finally redeemed in eternity. The fallen creation will indeed one day stand holy and blameless before him. We see this as well in Romans chapter 8 when it talks about uh, the the creation groaning, longing for newness. And this will indeed happen one day. Praise be to God for His redemptive victory in Jesus Christ. So we see that Scripture speaks of the atonement as actually securing and saving a people, thereby limiting its extent by magnifying its power. Indeed, it is perfect, and it is powerful atonement, powerful redemption. And those passages which indicate that Christ's death was universal or not to be understood as applying to each and every person who ever lived, but rather those texts do what? They emphasize the cosmic, the worldwide victory of God's redemption in bringing the international elect into the new creation in Christ. These great truths lead us to a number of wonderful conclusions. Right? What, did, what, what is the atonement? For whom did Christ die? And then this doxological, praiseworthy, so what? Right? What is next? What of these, these truths? If these are true, so what? Well, I hope you're sensing some of the so what already. But a number of points here in the conclusion, right? First is that God's new covenant love to you in Jesus Christ as his people is intensely personal. I've I've hinted at this throughout this message this morning. It is intensely personal. It is immeasurably powerful, and it is intensely personal. God the Father in election, and Jesus Christ in his dying, having set their love upon real people, specific people, you people, with real names and identities, Right? It's like, remember back in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant, 
It speaks of the high priest. They would carry the names of Israel over their heart into the holy places. Remember uh, all the vestments and the things that they wore. And they had the names engraven on stones on the breastplate. And they would carry on their heart the names of the Israelites into the holy place. Christ took your sins, brothers and sisters. He took your sins upon himself on the cross. And the atonement that he made is personal. It is for you. It is not a grab bag to be snatched by whoever comes by. It is for you by name. And like the bridegroom who rejoices over his bride, Christ, our Savior, rejoices over you with joy. With joy. With all of your flaws and all of your failings. He says, you are mine. And as Christ sees you, as the Father sees you, He sees my perfection. The robe of my righteousness covers you, dear Christian. This is His word to us. And He lovingly expended His life for your salvation. The words of the apostle will, the words of the apostle will permanently resound with close and intimate ring. Once you read this, once you understand this reality in light of limited atonement. How glorious, how wonderful, how precious. Right, listen to Galatians 2.20. <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Is that true of you this morning? Can you say that of yourself? Is the life you live in Christ, is it Christ's life? If you've not yet embraced the love of Christ, I implore you to do so even at this very moment. Pray to him to save you and include you in his love, his particular, powerful, personal, pure love. So salvation is, atonement is, Intensely personal, and secondly, it is very much a legal matter. Right? There are those who, in the last 10 years or so, have tried to pit against the personal, against the legal. Look, at the end of the day, it's both. Right? You who are married, is that a legal matter? Yes, it is. Is it a personal matter? Of course it is. It's no, it's not, it's no less personal because it's legal. Salvation is very much a legal matter. To be forgiven of sins legally requires what? satisfaction at the bar of justice. Why? Because we violated the terms of the covenant. The legal covenant of works. And as we've already seen, Christ's death does what? It satisfies those legal demands. Satisfies all that was needed. And so the curse, right? The curse, the sanction of the covenant, failing the covenant, the curse is abolished in the cross so that God can forgive us. And on the grounds of Christ's righteous life, we can be declared righteous in his sight. Why? It's not make-believe. It's true because Christ satisfied that for you. We are free and clear. And so it is personal, it is legal, and thirdly, do you now see, looking at all of this, dear Christian, do you see the personal, powerful ground of appeal you have to God for a good conscience and a confident faith? Because this is powerful, personal grounds that you have to appeal to that. Listen to Romans. 
Listen to Paul. Paul asks the question in Romans 8. <clears throat> and we'll close with this. Romans 8, chapter thir- uh, Romans 8, verse 33. Listen to this, this powerful and personal appeal that Paul has and that you, if <clears throat> you belong to Christ, have. <clears throat> he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right? For us language again. Who shall bring a charge? Who is to condemn us? Christ has dealt with it all. All that needed to be dealt with, Christ did. No charge can be brought against God's elect. Why? Because Christ died for them. And if Christ's death was universal, we could not appeal to it as the ground of safety, since there will be many for whom he died who will perish as guilty. You see that? But praise God, that's not what Scripture says. We, the people of God for whom Christ died, can turn to the cross and we cling to it as the sure grounds that even in the face of Satan's accusations, even in the face of our many sins and defects, in the face of our own heart lying to us and the world lying to us and Satan lying to, lying to us, we can what? We have powerful grounds. We have powerful confidence. Let Satan roar of our sins and our defects. We will what? Humbly confess our sins and cry out what? Christ is the one who died for me. And that's what we cling to for all of our life. This is our confident assurance and our confident assertion that we are forgiven and loved and surely the progress of his redemptive work in our life will prevail. Does that give us confidence? Does that give you assurance? Does that give you joy and hope in your life? As we stagger through and stumble through all the pains and strains of this life? Oh, indeed, indeed, brothers and sisters, it does. And so as we close, I pray that you would go from here, that you would knowing, dear Christian, that our salvation has been accomplished. It is pure. It is personal. It is perfect. It is powerful. And as you go from here, remember that when you sin and you fail and you fall again, and you will, and you are weak and you are in despair, you remember, Christian, You precious child of the living God, you are children of the King. You remember all that our triune God has done for you. Personally, powerfully, perfectly in his accomplishment. And you remember the extent that he went through, went to, in order to accomplish it all. Here again, and we'll close with this. Here again, the Spirit, as he tells us in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Right? Paul gives this long list, and it's constructed to do what? To drive home and to emphasize the point to the heart's trembling faith 
Right? We are weak of faith. And this is designed to meet that trembling, weak, quivering faith. It says this. At the end of this catalog, he says, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your trembling, dear Christian, is but for a time. Is but for a time. Know these truths, brothers and sisters. Trust them. Believe what he says about you. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is wonderfully true because if you are his, you are personally, perfectly, and powerfully saved by his precious blood. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. You are our almighty and loving God. We thank you for the revelation in Scripture to us, your word given to us, kept and passed on, secure for us. We praise you and thank you for Christ's perfection given to us. And that though we are sinners and rebels, even at that time you sought us and you saved us. You died for us, securing our redemption powerfully. Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw us near. Help us, Lord, to have a closer walk with our Savior, Jesus Christ. An intimate communion with Him. Lord, we pray you continue to sanctify us by the gospel, the good news of our Savior. Lord, we pray for your word as it goes out in the world, here and, around, here and everywhere. That, Lord, that it would have its full effect, that you would use it to bring your people in. We pray, Father, that all the distractions, all the obstacles, all the temptations, all the pains of this life, all the things of this world would indeed grow dim in light of the reality of your glory. And that we would see more and more clearly that glory and the glory of our Savior Jesus, and our union with Him. Lord, may we believe and live our lives out of that reality. No matter what comes, no matter what deters and challenges us, may this be our confession. And may we be assured of the victory won by Christ for us. We trust in Him for our very lives, now and forever. Even this morning, dear Lord, as we partake of the supper, may we revere and know Him who has made us partakers of His kingdom by faith. Father, we pray pray particularly for this congregation this morning. We pray for the Garbarino family. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless us, to comfort us. Lord, we pray for healing and strength, even as we wrestle through uh, physical health issues. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and joy, even in our suffering. We pray for the Groner family. Father, we pray that they would grow closer to you and to one another, and that they could settle into family life, uh, operating smoothly for your glory, for their, their edification, and for, your, for their joy in praising you. Father, we pray for the Harris family as well. We pray that they would be faithful to your word, that they would be faithful witnesses to those around them, their friends and family, who indeed do not know you, who may despise you. Dear Lord, we pray that you would give them the words to say and the demeanor and the disposition before them. That those would see them and, and, and wonder at the, the peculiarity. Why the joy? Why the peace? They would have opportunity to tell them 
of Jesus. And we pray for wisdom for them, for discernment in the instruction and discipline of their children. Rico and Esther, Father, bless them, we pray. We pray for the congregation of your people, all of us this morning, as we encounter various struggles in this life, that we might find, uh, that we might indeed fight to live in a manner that matches the profession of our mouths. We pray for all of us that are suffering this morning, who are under physical pain and suffering. We ask indeed that you would grant them relief and mercy and freedom. And if it's your will, dear Father, that you would heal them, that you would restore them. But whatever your perfect will is, Lord, we pray, draw us close unto you, that we would abide our suffering well, and that we would know that we have a perfect, gentle, and loving Lord who cares for us beyond all comprehension. That you are a God of the resurrection of the dead. That we would know the certainty that we will one day be made new. Grant us, Lord, we pray, through the blessing of following and loving your law, <clears throat> and that we've been freed from the bondage of sin and death, and we've been freed to also keep your ways in love and in gratitude. May we indeed live out of our newness in Christ. We pray, Lord, whatever hardships we might endure in this life, that we would see you, our God and our King, that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are gracious to us, and that you love us with the perfect love. Pray, Lord, be merciful to us. Provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually. Keep us from growing satisfied. Keep us from growing fearful. Strengthen us, we pray. Conform us evermore into the image of our King, your Son. Use us, we pray, Lord, in our lives and our lips to show the love and grace that we've been shown. Even to invite people to come and to hear the gospel, to hear of your mercy and holiness and to hear and be confronted by Jesus, the only hope for life in this world or the next. Lord, we pray for our presbytery and for the missionaries that you've sent out into the world. We pray for Pastor Stephen Van Eck and Pastor Peter Wallace and their respective churches. We pray, Lord, bless them in their work. Comfort them, encourage them, give them stamina, give them passion for the gospel and for shepherding the people that you put unto them to serve. Lord, we, we pray that you would bless them and be with them. Pray for the Kowachis and the Natragalis and the Thorntons, Lord, these, these, these families who you sent out across the world. Pray that you would give them peace and protection and success in their ministries. Lord, help them, give them great fidelity and tether to your word as they preach the gospel. Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can come boldly before you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.